Tonight's message is based on Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. These are the last verses of Romans chapter 6. We're worshiping tonight under the theme of being slaves to righteousness. And here the Apostle Paul writes, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. And just so you know, before we start, the example that he's using is slavery. He's providing an analogy here, and he's saying that every human analogy has some limitations. This one has some limitations too, but we'll get into why he chooses this particular metaphor and analogy. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. We've recalled each week, basically as we've gone through the summer series, that the first four chapters of of Romans is uh, the Apostle Paul's really comprehensive way of teaching us how a human being gets saved. He says, it doesn't come, your salvation does not come through your pedigree, who you are, or through your performance, what you do. It comes by grace, God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus' payment for your sins. It's about Jesus' gift of righteousness in your place. Uh, It's not advice about what you should do with your life. It's good news about what Jesus has done for your life in giving you his life. Okay? He spent, it's all, it all falls into this category of that big scriptural word justification. God declaring us not guilty of our sins through the meritorious work of Jesus Christ. But when you get to chapters 5 to 8, we said it shifts. The Apostle Paul starts working out the implications of what justification brings into our lives. And he anticipates what the natural response of the human flesh is going to be. That's why he anticipates it actually twice in Romans chapter 6. It's why he asks the same basic rhetorical question twice, which if you're paying attention when you read through Romans 6, you notice this kind of thing. He says, first of all, in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, if God's glory and grace are shown in my weaknesses and in my sins, does that mean I should ramp up the sins in my life because that will ramp up the evidence of his grace in my life? Uh, He says the same basic thing in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under God's grace, by no means. Same basic thing as he's now said twice. What's he getting at? He's getting at this idea that if God, Jesus Christ, died to take away all of my sins, is the natural conclusion to that, then my sins are really no big deal. Do they really not matter all that much? And the Apostle Paul's response is, whoa, wait a second, that's not what I'm saying. Just because your sins, just because your works and your absence of sin and your fighting against sin, just because your work doesn't contribute to your salvation, that doesn't mean your work makes no difference. Just because your salvation is not contingent on your doing, that does not render your doing useless. In fact, your doing is one of the main signs of your salvation. 
In practical terms, I gave you an example last week uh, of, and I'll give you another one this week. Both of them have been like the embodiment of things that I have heard throughout my ministry in various forms. One I gave last week was uh, a, a young woman early in ministry who told me that she knew that it was God's clear will. Uh, it's very obvious in scripture that she should not have sexual activity with her boyfriend. Sex outside of marriage is not God's will for humanity. And yet she very confidently said, and yet I know that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for all of my sins and therefore I guess I don't see why my behavior is all that big of a deal. And on the other end of the spectrum, I also had a young woman once storm out of my office once because I was insinuating, I wasn't just insinuating, I was straight up saying that your works do not generate your salvation. Your works are not a cause of your salvation. And she was, she was frustrated right by this because she said, if you take away uh, the idea that your works contribute to your salvation, that your obedience contributes to your salvation, what motivation is left for anybody to ever do any good? See, the, the latter concept was this idea that if my works don't contribute to my salvation, you know, how, how do you get motivated to do those things? And the former was, if my, if my works don't contribute to my salvation, if my sins don't deter from my salvation, then they must not matter at all. See? Those are both pretty good questions. They're fairly logical questions. And over the years of kind of meditating on this and, and working out responses, one of the things that I've come to conclude is there isn't, it's the same basic impulse in both of those ladies who said this to me, uh, but the response to both of them is not one that neatly just fits into the brain because it's not primarily just a logical response. It's a response uh, that indicates a relational affection. And here's what I mean. If uh, you start dating a girl and your buddy asks you, why do you like her? And you say, well, I think she's beautiful. Or I think she's really intelligent, really driven, and I'm attracted to that. Or I think she's really personable and easy to get along with and, and I have a good time with her. All of those are reasonable responses. All of those are very logical. And in, in our society, we perfectly would accept any one of those responses as being like, yep, that's how people go about in their dating relationship. On the other hand, if you've been married to a woman for 40 years and your friend says to you, why do you like her? Your heart is almost immediately a little offended simply by the question. What do you mean, why do I like her? I love her and I love her because I love her. See? And that doesn't take away from the fact that I might be, maybe do like a bunch of things about her, but I also love her because I'm connected to her and love her despite the fact that there might be aspects of her that I don't always like. See, what is, it, what is the difference? It's that kind of relational uh, dynamic that I think is completely impacts our obedience to Christ as well. So that when somebody says to me, look, if Jesus paid for all my sins, I don't think my sins are all that big of a deal. Or if my works don't contribute to my salvation, I lose all motivation to do my works. What I would respond to that is, well, I can see how your thoughts might eventually go that way. But what that ultimately tells me is you don't have much of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you actually had a relationship with the guy, if you actually have a relationship with anybody, you can't just willfully, deliberately defy them and break their heart. Nor when you do something for them, is it purely mechanical. And that's the dynamic of Christian living. Christian living is reciprocated relational love. It's not just 
checkboxes of obedience to commands. It's, it's relational expressions of love. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely getting into this dynamic here this evening. I'm going to break the teaching into these three points. We're going to look at, uh, number one, what I'll call inevitable slavery. The fact that uh, you can't not be slaves according to the Bible. You just get the difference of who you want to be a slave to. Who's your master? Number two, uh, how we were formerly slaves to impurity. Uh, if you serve any master other than the true master, it's going to lead to death and destruction and corruption and oppression in your life. And number three, God has released you and freed you to be righteous and, and service to the one true master is what brings forth righteousness in your life. So inevitable slavery, formerly slaves to impurity, now slaves to righteousness. First of all, inevitable slavery. And I alluded to this earlier, the verse, uh, verse 19 the Apostle Paul says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Now, somebody could, I could see somebody easily asking here, why on earth, if he's making a, a point about Christian living, would he use an illustration like slavery, something that is so universally, there's such a distaste for and there's such a, you know, kind of offense attached to it. There's two things that I would say to that. Uh, first thing is, well, he's using it in part because it's universal. And it certainly was universal to everybody in first century Roman Empire. And generally speaking, when you're giving illustrations to other people, you don't want them to be niche. You want them to be as universal and broad as possible so that as many people as possible understand the illustration. Second thing is, uh, always, 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 21st century Western modern people, when we hear something like slavery in the Bible, we always read it through the lens of 19th century American South forced race-based slavery. And that's not the slavery that Paul is living with in the first century Rome. Almost, almost always it had something to do with financial indebtedness uh, in first century Rome. And you could work your way out of it and you probably made some decisions to get yourself into it. That is not at all like what 19th century American South slavery was. So understand that they're not the same thing. The reason he's using the analogy though is because it brings forth an excellent point of comparison. See, what he's saying is when you're slaved, you're not simply enslaved. You're always enslaved to something or someone. Every human has a master. Everybody's got to serve something. No human can completely control every aspect of their life. And they realize that. That's one of the reasons why we run after other things that we think will give us some level of control and security and hope for the future. And whatever that is, that's your master. That's what you serve. That's what people worship. That's what people live for. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, if you choose in your life a master other than Jesus Christ as your master, it invariably is going to lead you down a very difficult road because the things that you're driven to live for, you're either one of probably four ramifications, things that you're going to overwork to achieve it. You're going to have inordinate fear if that thing that you think defines you is threatened. You're going to have deep anger whenever somebody stands in the way and that thing is blocked. Or you're going to have inconsolable fear whenever you lose that thing that you think gives you meaning, purpose, and hope. Any master that you attempt to serve other than Jesus Christ is going to end in overwork, inordinate fear, deep anger, and inconsolable despair. By the way, when I say things like everybody worships something, non-religious people, religious people, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody's worshiping something all the time. Sometimes I get a little bit of pushback from people, both non-religious people and religious people, and they say, what do you mean everybody's worshiping something all the time? Let me clarify. 
I am not saying that everybody is a religious practitioner of sorts. I'm using what is the real definition of worship. Worship comes, you know, the etymology, the old English of it is worthship. Worship is to ascribe ultimate value to something or someone. So let me give you a little bit of an example here that I think is fairly innocuous, but it will give you the, the basic idea of worship. Let's say you have something that you really enjoy in life. Uh, let, let's just something, again, fairly neutral and innocuous. Let's say college football. I, we love college football. Somebody, I'm guessing some people in this room that might, you know, certainly apply to. And therefore, what do you do if you really, really love college football? You schedule all of your life around attending college football events and watching college football games. You probably regularly read the prophecies of your favorite analysts and pundits. You probably, um, I, I would imagine anyway, sing the praises of your favorite teams and your favorite players. You might shell out a good chunk of change in order to participate in these kinds of activities. And you might even wear the ceremonial garb and, and special dress that accompanies uh, college football events and games, right? In other words, there's time, there's energy, there's finances, there's passion, there's words of praise. And through your lifestyle, through your lifestyle, you are demonstrating that you ascribe a great deal of worth to college football. See? Now, everybody has something like that. But the interesting thing is everybody has something that's at the very end of all the possible decisions because worth for human beings is kind of a subjectively determined thing. So every choice that you make is a choice between one and another. There's a binary level of subjective value. So you're here tonight because you're not there. And the people who are over there are there in part because they wanted to be there more than they wanted to be here, right? That's the decisions that we make in life. It's a value of what is worth more to me, what is more valuable to me. Now, in life, if you whittled down all the things that are potentially valuable, what would be the end of the binaries? What would come to the very end of the when I choose this or this or this or that? If at the end of all of those choices, what's left standing is college football, then not only have you ascribed worth to college football, but you've ascribed ultimate worth to college football. In other words, that then, by definition, is what you worship. Everybody is worshiping something. Nobody doesn't have an end to those questions. Now, somebody, I've, had, I've heard some people push back and say, well, no, I would never, I don't have anything at the end. I don't have anything of ultimate value. Uh, I don't like to paint myself into that kind of a corner. You know what you're doing at that point? Freedom. That's what it is for you. Personal non-commitment uh, autonomy. That is your functional God in your life. Everybody necessarily has to subscribe and ascribe ultimate value to someone or something in your life. The Apostle Paul is just taking it one step further than I do. And he's saying not only does everybody ascribe ultimate value to something, he says whatever it is that you're worshiping, you're enslaved to it. The moment your heart ascribes ultimate worth to, so to something, it starts telling you what to do. It starts running your life. It's your master. Now, from a human development standpoint, it's really easy to, or it's really interesting, at least to me, uh, and it's a really big question in human uh, psychology development of personality development, I should say. Are you capable of being somebody different than who you actually are? So the person that you have turned out to be, are you capable of being a different person than that person? 
And most modern Americans, almost by reflex, would say, well, yes, of course I could be different from whom I am. I could, I could be... I could be five pounds heavier or five pounds lighter. I could be five IQ points better or five IQ points worse. I could make a little more money or a little less money. It's all based on the choices that I make. Okay, I agree. The choices that we make in life are very influential. They're very important. The question in development, however, is not do choices matter. The question is what causes you to make the choices that you make in life? In other words, your personal brain chemistry, do you think that at all impacts the choices that you make in life? Your genetic predisposition that was handed down to you, does that at all impact the decisions that you make in life? What about the culture and time and place in which you were born? What about the family that raised you? Does that all impact the decisions and choices that you make in your life? Well, of course. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Uh, he's again saying, look, if, if the Spirit of God has entered into your life and awoken you, you basically have this binary choice. <laughs> It's, it's a one or the other, either or, no one can serve two masters kind of thing. And what he says in verse 19 is, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness. You'll notice Paul doesn't say you have the choice to not be a slave. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, you're not going to be a slave, you're going to be this. He says, you're going to be a slave. The only thing you get to choose, it's because you're wired to serve something. You're wired to need and have a master. The only choice that you get if you are a slave is you get the choice of who you're going to offer yourselves to in life. Who am I going to serve as my master? And the Apostle Paul's big idea, his big argument in all of this is why not choose the only master who will love you like a father. Because if he loves you like a father, then that transforms the relationship from slavery into childhood. See? That's the big idea. We're all inevitably slaves. It's just who or what we ultimately serve as the master, which dictates the, the goodness or badness of it. Now, he says, formerly, you're slaves to impurity. Specifically, uh, what he says, anything that you choose other than Jesus Christ is going to destroy you. What he says in verses 20 to 21 are, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Now, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. So, if you go back to the example that we used earlier, like an obsession with college football, Paul's question here would be, what do you ultimately gain from it? So you're obsessed with it all your life. It's your master and you serve it all your life. What do you get out of it in the end? What do you gain? So if you're a college football fan, maybe you gain uh, some passion. Maybe you gain some highs and some lows, but mostly lows. Because that's, that's the whole way the system is set up. You understand that, right? Because like, I don't know how many Division I football teams there are. It's like 100 and something. So even if it's random, then you have a 1 in 100 and something chance for your team to win. And if they win then you've got about a couple months until the next season begins, so it doesn't last all that long. Your odds are better if you're a professional football fan because there's only 32 teams, and uh, you have a one in, randomly you have a 1 in 32 chance of your ultimate victory taking place. The odds are significantly less if you live in Michigan and are a fan, by the way, uh, just in case you know. But the, the, the basic idea, it's, it's like imagine if your whole life Imagine if your whole life was spent scratching off lottery tickets that never actually won. 
They promised so little. They promised so much and they delivered so little. If you had access to every lottery ticket on the planet and you never won, it would probably drive you insane. But that's Paul's point. What do you gain from serving other, something other than the true master? In the end, nothing. And you trajectory out that out to infinity and eternity and it'll drive you nuts and that's hell. Uh, this is the Ebenezer Scrooge syndrome. Ebenezer Scrooge is one of the greatest characters in all of literature. And he's so fascinating because he's wise and he's learned and he's hardworking. He's just misguided. See, what, what is his ultimate worth? His ultimate worth, obviously, is money. He sacrifices everything for it. He sacrifices his relationships. He sacrifices friendships. He sacrifices love. He sacrifices any kind of goodness or righteousness shown to anybody else. Also that he can serve money. And on Christmas Eve, uh, the three spirits, they come and they show him the error of this, his ways. Why? Well, you have the, the ghost of Christmas past that shows him uh, how, you know, how much he missed out on by serving money. And you have the ghost of Christmas present that shows him how meaningless his life currently is. And you have the ghost of Christmas future who is the scariest of all because it shows him at his death and it said, what did you benefit from serving money all your life, Scrooge? And he goes tumbling down into the grave and it's hell. And it's supposed to look like hell and it's supposed to feel like hell because it is hell. Because when you serve a master other than the true master, it always leads to death and destruction and hell. See? What did you gain by serving that? Uh, the Bible has plenty of examples of this as well. Look at the character of Samson. Samson, as much opportunity as he had from the Lord, he refused to submit. Samson wanted to submit his heart to a different master. It was the lusts of his flesh. And therefore, uh, he submitted himself to uh, prostitutes and Delilah and deception and all of that. And where did it get him in the end? Embarrassment and regret and death at the hands of the Philistines. Uh, same thing with the prodigal son. Interesting story, thing about the, the, the younger son, the prodigal son, is he ends up in the exact same place that he started in, but only with a new perspective. Ever think about that? Uh, he, he wants, he has, he's living right there under the love of his father, but he wants a different master. He wants his freedom. He wants to pursue different desires. And so what does he do? He forsakes his master. He goes out into the world. He serves his desires. He serves his flesh. And where does it land him? He literally becomes enslaved to a pig farmer and he becomes lower than the beasts of the earth that he, in the Jewish context, would have considered the lowest of beasts, the pigs. And at that moment, in hell, he repents. He returns home. He resubmits himself to his father and it's only at that moment that he finds true freedom. See? If, if, if money is your master... If the lusts of the flesh are your master. By the way, it works the same way with more noble sounding masters as well. Anything can enslave you. If you're enslaved to the approval of others, which some of you maybe are, it is going to consciously, constantly bring about an experience of self-pity, hurt feelings, envy, and feelings of inadequacy. If you are enslaved to a, a master of success, it's going to give you excessive drivenness, fatigue, worry, and fear. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the false master is. It is an endlessly cycling treadmill that will burn you out and wear you down. And it will never actually satisfy you. That's why, you know, the Apostle Paul says here in the famous verse, 
the wages of sin is death. What does he mean there? We said a couple weeks ago, sin is not just doing bad things. It's serving false spiritual masters. What do, what do you get on your paycheck when you serve false spiritual masters? What's the wage? What do you earn? You earn death, separation from anything that is actually good. Which brings us to the final point. Paul says, don't do that. Don't submit yourselves as slaves to false masters. Submit yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which he, he also says in a couple of verses later, he says, submit yourselves as slaves to God. Verse 22, but, but now you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Paul does not teach here that Christian freedom is uh, not having any masters. It's not total autonomy. It's not no obligation. Rather, Christian freedom means slavery to righteousness. True freedom can only ever really be found in relationship to the God who created you. And therefore, what freedom really is, this is, this is, Americans miss this. Don't you miss this. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions in your life. Freedom is the absence of unnecessary restrictions in your life and the presence of restrictions that you need that are in accord with, in accord with the way that you are designed. Uh, this is very easy to prove. Look at something like gravity. Does gravity restrict you? That's like all gravity does. That's, it holds you back and it holds you down. Uh, can you escape gravity? Yeah, with like modern technology, we actually can figure out what it's like to escape gravity. Not completely, but we can become freer from gravity. If we shot you up into outer space, you would be at least be freer from gravity. And what would happen to you? At that point, you're, it, very quickly, your muscles would atrophy, and you wouldn't be able to do a lot of the stuff that humans are created and capable of doing, and in not too much time, you would eventually die. Why? Because you desperately need that restriction to survive. It's not a restriction that kills you. It's a restriction that frees you to live according to your design. And what Paul is saying is God's laws, the, the commands of do this or don't do that, they lead to human flourishing. They lead to human prospering. They lead to beauty. And the thought here that uh, one of the most important key verses in all of scripture that Paul ends this chapter in is verse 23. And I'm going to tell you what it clearly simply means in gospel terms, but I'm going to give you a little bit more. Paul says, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And very clearly, very obviously, what I've known for pretty much all my life what that means is what you deserve for your sins is death. What you have earned for your rebellion against God is separation from God or death. You can't earn salvation on your own. What Jesus did in his perfect life was he earned salvation and gifted it and credited it to mankind freely of charge. Why? Simply because he loved us that much. And that's the gospel. This verse is like the gospel in, in simplest terms. But in recent years, I've come to understand a couple other things about it. There's some very interesting aspects here. Number one, earning a wage always depletes you. So what does Paul mean in this illustration? You get a wage, why do you get a wage? Why is somebody paying you right now? You get a wage for services rendered. You get a wage for sacrifices that you make. If your job, if your job didn't require anything from you, nobody would be paying you anything. What does it require of you? It requires probably some time and some energy and some frustrations in human interaction. 
and perhaps using a specific skill set that you worked very hard to develop, um, all of that in some way, shape, or form, it depletes you. Again, that's why they pay you. Now, the reason you do it, if, if it depletes you so much, why would you do it? Because you believe ultimately that the, the wage that you get for it is going to outweigh the sacrifices that are made. So what's the difference then between a wage and a gift? A gift offers all the goodness without any of the depletion of you. A gift always energizes and it always enhances. And the Apostle Paul is saying if Jesus Christ is your master, it will never, ever deplete you. You never will miss out on anything. You will never lose anything that is truly good. Which is why Jesus says, follow me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See? The difference between a wage and a gift. It, a gift never actually depletes you. A wage has to deplete you. And secondly, you can't earn anything from God because he doesn't need anything from you. This is a really helpful point. It's very practical. A master pays a wage because he's got to have something from you. And essentially what that then means is you only hire people to do labor for you if you have some kind of insufficiency. Either if you can't do it all by yourself or you don't have the energy to cover it all by yourself. So a master or a boss pays anything because they have an insufficiency attached to them. But what Paul is saying is God can't give a human being a wage because God is completely self-sufficient. And therefore, anything that he gives to you must necessarily be a gift of love. What that also means, if God doesn't actually need anything himself, that means that anything you do for him, any obedience that you show to him, the only possible, it's superfluous. There's no reason for it other than an expression of love. It's one lover giving flowers to another, to another lover. It's simply a relational motivation. At the cross, Jesus voluntarily endured the most horrific form of slavery imaginable. Yet he was shackled, he was humiliated, and yes, he was stretched out and beaten. The, the only true master would never dream of beating you but he would take a beating in your place for your sins. He doesn't have to give us anything. He wants to give us everything. The only true master would do it all over again. And the Bible says he doesn't have to because he died once for the sins of all. But rest assured, if Jesus was given the exact same choice to do it all over again, he would do it all over again in a heartbeat. And he will never demand services. He will only give gifts. He, will, he doesn't need or want a slave. Your heavenly father only wants little children. And therefore, like a parent delighting in Christmas morning watching a child play with their new toys, your heavenly father loves watching you put to good use all the gifts that he's given you. So let's ask him to use those good gifts in service to him. Lord God, you alone are the master of our lives. Through your son's sacrifice for our sins, you showed us undeniably, undeniably how much we are worth to you. May our lives clearly show 
how much you are worth to us. To the glory of your name. Amen.